Welcome to Our Story, Your Story, the video podcast where we share our personal experiences and invite you to share yours. We are Toby Eunice and Shelley Carney, and together we'll take you on a journey through our lives and the lives of our family, friends, and guests. We believe that everyone has a story to tell, and we can all learn from each other's experiences. So whether you're looking for inspiration, entertainment, or simply a good story, you've come to the right place. Hello, and welcome to Our Story, Your Story. I'm Shelley Carney. And I'm Toby Eunice. Thanks for joining us. Today we're reading from A Gypsy's Kiss, A Treasure Hunt Adventure, our book, and we're starting uh, today at chapter 12. If you've missed any of the chapters 1 through 11, make sure you go back and catch up on those. Are you ready to start? I'm ready to start. Okay. Chapter 12, The Way Forward. And you may remember that uh, Miguel is at his uncle's house in Abiquiu, New Mexico. He was trying to borrow the motorcycle that his uncle had in the barn, and he was caught. His uncle, Carlos, brought him in. They had coffee, and they talked about what Miguel wanted to do while he was there. and. Um, his uncle Carlos thought, you know, maybe I'll help him out and send him off to bed. So this is the next morning. The night goes about as well as you can expect for a teenager set to experience what he believes will be his first great adventure. Around sunrise, the rooster in the yard crows. I immediately awaken, roll out of bed, pull on my boots, and hasten to the living room slash kitchen. It smells like breakfast, and there is a hot plate of scrambled eggs, thick-sliced bacon, and toast waiting for me on the table. The coffee pot, still steaming, rests on a leather coaster. I pour myself a cup and drink it black. It's thick and, in its own way, sweet. It makes me feel a little more grown-up and confident. <clears throat> I'm just about finished eating breakfast when Uncle Carlos comes in through the front door. Done? He gestures to the nearly empty plate in front of me. Yes, sir. Thanks for that. Make a trip to the latrine and meet me outside. <laughs> I sweep the last corner of toast through the last bit of egg, top them with the last bit of bacon, stuff it in my mouth, and wash it down with the last sip of coffee. A few minutes later, I meet him outside. The BSA is a lot better looking than it was the night before. All the kit is either stowed away in the large black saddlebags or rolled up into neat packages and tied to the back end of the long seat. Uncle Carlos thought of everything I might need and made sure it was rigged to the bike before sunrise. Crockett sits to one side of our work area and watches us with great curiosity. I wonder if he's ever heard this old single start up. I topped it off with gas and oil. That should get you to your first stop. The tires and tubes have a couple hundred miles on them, so they shouldn't give you any problems unless you run over something. There's a tool roll under the seat. I put a chain and lock in the saddlebag. Use it whenever you walk away from the bike. Since the last time you saw her, I bored and stroked her out to a 650. She has a new carb and exhaust, so she's a lot faster than she used to be. Watch the speed limits, especially in Texas. Drink water before you get thirsty and fill your canteen every time you stop for gas. He hands me a slip of paper. That's my phone number. If you run into any problems, call me collect. Do you have a map? I can get to Lubbock without it. I'd made the trip to Lubbock many times with my father for the auto auctions. I'll pick one up in Texas and then again in Louisiana. I appreciate all his advice and the way he thoroughly prepared the bike for me. Yet, I'm ready to get this trip started and chafing at any delay. I don't want to be late and miss this chance to see Mardi Gras. He takes my leather satchel and hands me his well-used biker jacket. Put this on. It's a bit of effort to get it on over my own jacket and get all the zippers closed the way they should be. I finish by buckling the belt at my waist. 
Carlos slips his aviator goggles over my head. They hang loosely around my neck. He puts his cap on me and hands me his leather gloves. With each piece of clothing donned, I armor myself in the persona of Miguel, the adventurer. I follow in the footsteps of my Uncle Carlos. If you take a spill, lead with the back of your shoulder and roll. Get your leg out from under the bike as quickly as you can, or you'll end up with a head tattoo. It's not really a tattoo. He's talking about the hash marks that the fins on the cylinder head will burn into your leg if the bike lands on top of you. He has them on the inside of the lower half of his right leg. I think that's about everything. How much cash you got? About $40. I pat the envelope I've tucked away inside my jacket. He reaches into the pocket on the inside of his jacket and pulls out a handful of bills. Here's another 40. You can work it off up here next summer. You sure? I'm sure you're going to work it off next summer. Let's go down to the gate. I straddle the bike and walk at the quarter mile to the gate I jumped over last night. Carlos and Crockett walk alongside. He continues to give me advice, most of which my excitement prevents me from hearing. I feel like everything that needs to be said has been. I sense Uncle Carlos is reliving the memories of his own travels. It's obvious in the way he is starting me off with as much help as he can provide. Carlos jogs a few steps ahead, unlocks the gate, and swings it open. I walk the bike near where he's standing, and he extends his right hand. I grab and shake it with gratitude and excitement. Buena suerte, caballero. This sentiment from my Uncle Carlos is better than a blessing from the Pope. Thank you. I'll see you when I see you. You remember how to start this thing? He asks. Nodding with an exuberant grin, I twist the power knob on the top of the headlamp, lean down and open the fuel petcock. Then I push the compression lever to open up the cylinder, play with the shift lever until I find the green light of neutral and lift myself up on the Kickstarter. Once, twice, and the bike starts on the third try. I return the compression lever to its closed position. Uncle Carlos and Crockett give me the once-over. He shakes the kit on the back of the seat to make sure it's secure. Then he steps back and watches as I pull the goggles over my eyes. I turn in his direction and give him the best salute I can muster. He returns it with a snap. I pull in the clutch, shift the transmission into first gear, then simultaneously twist the throttle and release the clutch as smoothly as I can. I don't want to embarrass myself in front of this big-hearted man. I roll through the gate and turn left onto the two-lane asphalt road. In the mirror, I can see Uncle Carlos and Crockett watching until I crest the hill. I've got 60 hours to get to Mardi Gras. I had uh, pictures of a BSA Gold Star 500 that we wanted to include in the book, but I couldn't get copyright releases. I couldn't find the people that owned the uh, pictures. So I sent the pictures to an artist that I found on Fiverr.com and said, can you make uh, a picture from the photos that I a sent you? A vector image. Uh, of what? A vector, vector image. image, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for remembering that. Could you make a vector image from the photos that I'm sending you? And he did this beautiful drawing of it. So. Yeah. And there's one on the back, too. Oh, that's that's the same one. That was the one in color that he did. Yeah. So. <clears throat> so, you're on your adventure. Miguel is on his adventure at uh, daybreak mm. in February. Colder than heck. <laughs> I would imagine so. That's why you're wearing two on, coats. Well, on, on the motorcycle, because the, the wind actually, you know, if you're not careful, you'll freeze your face off. Yeah. So were you wearing a helmet? No. No. I was wearing those uh, one of those uh, Rebel Without a Oh, that's cause right, the hat. Hat yeah. uh, with a white bill and the gold braid. Um, 
And I kind of remember pulling the gold braid down. The gold braid was designed to pull it down below your chin so it didn't blow off. Mm-hmm. And I kind of remember doing that. But I did have a face covering on uh, of something. I don't remember whether it was a handkerchief scarf or what. Or... Scarf. Probably not a scarf. More likely a handkerchief. Bandana. Uh, and then I had the big aviator goggles on. Uh, and that was before I started wearing glasses. I didn't start wearing glasses until I was in the military. And... Um, uh, so I was pretty well prepared. The gloves helped. Uh, but it, you know, it was chilly and you had to be careful with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I thought that the theme of this chapter was support <clears throat> to move forward because we talked about it moving forward, mm-hmm. but it was easier for you to move forward because you had all that support from Uncle Carlos. He provided you everything that you would need to get you to Mardi Gras. Mm-hmm. Uh, to ride that motorcycle all the way there. So uh, my uncle Carlos and my uncle Mundi, his, his name was Edmundo, but we called him Uncle Mundi, really filled in. They had both spent time. Carlos didn't go to college. He graduated from high school, entered the military. Uh, Mundi had gone to high school. They all went to Santa Fe High School. And uh, then he went on to college. Then he went to the military. And then he became a radio jock and eventually, you know, went to uh, Washington to work for the Voice of America because he spoke both Spanish and English equally well. And then that's where he met Aunt Linda. But by this time, he was, as of yet, unmarried. He was back from the military. He was back from the military. And, uh, and and what I mean by this time is that period after my father died. And they were the ones, Carlos and Mundi, that had the most uh, influence on my years between uh, my father dying and going off to college. Uh, aside from the Christian brothers, Christian brothers can't help it. I mean, but they were the ones that, that filled in with all the interesting pieces of life that my father couldn't. Uh, except for trout fishing, neither one of them were trout fishermen. Although Carlos did every once in a while, he wasn't. He wasn't. Uh, he was a, a salmon egg. We called him fisherman. Um, but other than that, I learned all kinds of stuff from Carlos. I learned about you know, he was an expert at repairing cars. He he made a boat. We made a boat together. Um, he could fix anything. You know, whatever it was, he was always over to my grandmother's uh, to help her, you know, fix the toilet or fix the sprinklers or fix the whatever. Um, he knew how to plant, right? He knew how to how to make a garden. Um, and it could be a small garden or it could be 50 acres worth of, I don't think it was 50 acres, probably 10 acres worth of, of, of hay, of alfalfa. Um so he just seemed to know a lot of things. And I suppose 20 years of traveling in the military helped him do that. Mundi was more technical. He taught me, he helped me get my ham radio license. Um, he taught me how to use transmitters and receivers, big military ones that he bought for me. The receiver was like that big, you know, and the transmitter sat on top of it. He told me how to, he taught me how to build an antenna to receive and transmit ham radio. Uh, he got me into photography. He gave me my first 35 millimeter camera and taught me how to use it. He, he taught me astronomy. Um, and I could never see, I didn't know at that time that I was astigmatic. And uh, the problem with astigmatics, even kind of when they're wearing their glasses, I, I took an astronomy class in college and uh, we had our first uh, field trip to the, to the uh, observatory. And I was looking through it and we were trying to explain and I kept explaining, it's still fuzzy and it's still fuzzy, they're adjusting me. And um, the the um, teacher said, uh, have you ever been checked for astigmatism? And I said, no, I've never been. I, I didn't realize up until that time. The, the problem with this astigmatism is your eyes aren't nearsighted or farsighted. It's just that everything's a little bit fuzzy. And you don't know that, right? You can still read the stuff that's on the chalkboard. Uh, you can still drive. You can still do those things. But when you put your eyes up to a telescope, you literally see stars from the astigmatism. You see what you expect to see as opposed to the round objects that everybody else is seeing. And he said, you need to have your eyes checked because if you're seeing stars, you're, you're astigmatic. And I didn't do anything about it until the, mil- until the military forced it. Uh, 
and the reason the military forced it is the first day I was on the shooting range, uh, the um, the range officer noticed uh, that I was off target, right? And so he'd come over and he'd check me. He said, are you seeing that target? And I, I'd say, yes, Drill Sergeant, I am. And he calls Sergeant Barinke over and he said, this, this man's not seeing the target. And Sergeant Barinke says, uh, do you wear glasses? In his Filipino accent. And I said, no, don't wear glasses. And he said, uh, we're going to have you checked. And literally they took me off the field, right? Right then I went to the office of the optometrist on base, had my eyes checked, and the three days later, I had glasses. And from that point, and they are those ugly military glasses, the ones with the big black frames, and you don't get a choice. And uh, at the time, there was no computer, so they didn't worry about computer distances. And uh, the only thing they worried about was whether you could read a book and drive. And so at that time, they were bifocals plus correcting the astigmatism. Now, you never completely correct it, but you can correct it enough so that you can shoot things. <laughs> I know that sounds funny, but that's what it was. And so I was, uh, I wore glasses from that point forward with straps on them, <laughs> thing around your head so they didn't fall. Yeah. Um, Got to have something. But let's go back to the uh, that point uh, of Uncle Carlos was, um, Uncle Carlos was, well, see, you didn't have to. I didn't have to wear them. The only time I had to wear them was on the shooting range. Oh. You could do everything. I can see. I can still take off my glasses and walk around the house, and I can even drive when I have to uh, because it's the difference between astigmatism and, and being farsighted and nearsighted. So you didn't have to wear them all the time, and nor, nor did I. Um, but... Uncle Carlos and Mundi were the ones that got me through that period. And I can trust that not only were they going to be there for me, but they would help me learn things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what was the greatest thing about them is I learned a lot from them that I may not have from my father. My father was focused on, you know, being a businessman. Mm -hmm. I don't think he knew anything about ham radio or photography. I remember we had a little, uh, there was a name for it, camera, a 120 millimeter camera that every family Brownie. had. Brownie. Yeah, that was the extent of the picture. And I don't remember him taking pictures. It was my mother. Um, and so Mundi gave me my first 35 millimeter camera, taught me about photography, taught me the things that he had learned, I guess, in college. I don't, I don't know what he majored in in college. Probably journalism. There, there's no such thing as majoring in radio broadcasting. But that's where he ended up. And he was very successful at it to the extent that you know, he managed one of the radio stations in Santa Fe until he formed his own company, an advertising agency. But everybody knew him. He was also, he also went to, uh, he became a, you know, a New Mexico state representative representing Santa Fe County and eventually became a New Mexico senator. Um, but Aunt Linda didn't like politics. She wasn't a big fan of politics. So when uh, Bruce King, who became governor, asked him to run for lieutenant governor with him, uh, Aunt Linda said no. So he got out of politics. Mm -hmm. That's when he started. I, I think by that time he had his own company. So I forgot the question. I'm just going off here. Oh, didn't he actually ask a question? Oh, sorry. It's okay. You're all right. Um, so you talk about Uncle Carlos um, helping your grandmother, and this was his mother. Mm -hmm. Um, was also your mom's mom, mm -hmm. and uh, she lived in Santa Fe. The grandma and my mother both lived in Santa Fe. Everybody else lived, all the Delgados lived in Santa Fe. The uh, Abiquiu uh, ranch was on the Espinosa side. And, well, that was my grand, so my grandmother was Espinosa. That's where they came from. The Delgados were Santa Fe County people, uh, but they all lived in Santa Fe. Uh, my grandmother on Oñate, and we on Cortez. And Aunt Lucy lived with my grandma after my grandfather died. Uh, he died, I don't know, a couple of years after my father. Um, but Aunt Lucy moved in with my grandmother uh, to just I support. I he had died before your father because your father no, took over the that was, trucking. That's the Eunice grandfather. I'm talking about the Delgado one. Oh, okay. The Eunice grandfather died before I was born. Okay, that's right. Yeah. All right. Get and um, 
And Lucy moved in with uh, Grandma Delgado to help take care of her. And um, they're the, they they had the house on Nyate, and that was the one that had the little house behind the little guest house behind it, where Uncle Carlos would stay when he was in Santa Fe. Mm. And the garage, there was a garage there, and that's what we built. Uh, that's where we built the boat. So why was he in Abiquiu? Uh He was. I think it was a combination of things. So I think, first of all, he liked being around the farm animals and the, you know, watching the plants grow. But he was also kind of a loner, right? He wasn't he wasn't the most social of people unless it was the annual primo party. And then, man, he would he was he played the guitar. He sang in a really good voice. He was he was probably the most entertaining uh, of my uncles. And uh, having and you put a couple of beers in him, and he was ready with his guitar. I learned to play guitar from him. He taught me how to play guitar. You start with the old dun 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 dun, and every almost every New Mexican music starts with every New Mexican song start, starts with that. Depending on the tempo, you just change the tempo. Dun dun dun. So he had he uh, he was not. Uh, I don't feel like he was as social a person as was, say, Mundi or Albert or uh, the other uncles. So we lost a couple of them. We lost uh, uh, Uncle Julian and Uncle Eddie uh, to in World War II. Uncle Eddie was in a B a bomber, a B seventeen bomber, and Uncle Julian was on the ground, and um, he was wounded. But he was wounded in a way that he never fully recovered. It like he he came home, but we went to visit him in the veterans hospital. We mm -hmm. went we came we'd come to Albuquerque to visit him in the veterans hospital, mm -hmm. and he was there as long as I remember until he passed away. So they were all just good, you know, good big-hearted men who who filled in for a lot of the things that I wouldn't have uh, filled in for a lot of the things that my father may, may have taught me, uh, but, but wasn't there to do that. So they did it and they were very good at it. And I think part of what they did to me was uh, create a lifelong interest in learning new things. And I've, I've just never stopped learning new things. It's always something. As you, well, so yeah. Um, that's what was great about my relationships with him. And Uncle Carlos was, you know, for as rough around the edges as he was. He wasn't college educated, but he did have a lot of time in the military. Um, for as rough as around the edges as he was, he had a good heart. I don't ever remember him fighting with anybody, you know, arguing, unless he was in a bar and he had a couple of drinks and somebody, you know, commented on his height or something. I don't know what it took to set him off, but... Not that I ever saw any of it. I just heard the stories of it. Mm -hmm. So uh, was all of your family as generous as your Uncle Carlos? He set you up, basically. Anything you needed, he thought of it first, and he gave it to you to take. Here's food. Here's the motorcycle. Here's the jacket. Here's the hat. Here's the gloves. Here's everything you're going to need. Gas and oil. He stayed up all night fixing up the bike to make sure it was ready for you. Um, was that just the way your family was, or was that just him? I don't think any other member of the family would have been quite that generous as to have allowed me to have supported this dream of taking off, you know, our, what is it, 1,200 miles? <clears throat> um, I don't think anyone else would have done, including Uncle Mundi. Mundi would have talked me out of it. This is not a good thing for you to do. Let's, I'll drive you. You know, he'd, he'd make offers. Uh, mm. Carlos is the only one that I that I felt I could trust would go and say, "Yeah, let's do this." You know, big guy. Did you think he might have wanted to go with you? I I think there was a part of him. I knowing him and knowing. It was an adventure. I think he would have enjoyed the adventure in the same way uh, that a documentary maker might have, where you're just the ride along, you know, and you're just documenting. And I think uh, I, if there were, if there had been another motorcycle in that garage, 
I think he would have gone along. I think he would have joined me. And I, I think it would have changed everything. Mm -hmm. Right. It would have limited the amount of adventures that I had on that trip. Uh, but it would also have saved me from going to jail and being railroaded home, et cetera. You know, uh, so, but I think if there had been two bikes in that garage, he'd have gone with me. Um, part for the adventure and part to make sure nothing bad happened to me mm -hmm. because he still had to address the issue of how my mother was going to respond once she found out that I'm riding his motorcycle. And I think the agreement was, I'm going to tell her you stole it. You know, didn't know anything about it. And she was his sister? Sister. Okay. Yeah. My mother was uncle Carlos's sister. Was she older then? Yeah. Uncle mm -hmm. Carlos. So, um, let me see. So Mundi was the youngest. And Julian and Eddie and Julian were the oldest. And then it went uh, Albert, Mundi, Carlos, or Albert, Mundi, Aunt Lucy, my mother, Carlos. My grandmother had 12 children, including mm -hmm. a pair of twins, of, of which, like, I don't know, seven survived. Mm -hmm. And then we lost two in the war. Mm -hmm. in World War II. Mm -hmm. So there were only, the, the only ones that I remember were um, Carlos, Mundi, Albert, Julian for a little while, but I only, I only remember him in the hospital and Lucy and my mother. So what was that? Five, six. And she had 12 children, including, like I said, including the oldest one was, uh, and they used to talk about her like she was, she lived into her late teens. Oh, I, I'll never remember her name now. But they talked about her like she was the, whatever they talked about her. They talked about her like she was the return of the Virgin Mary. It was just like she was, they had a religious appreciation for her. She had a, a, a kind of... Who was this, a sister? Maria Solomé. That's why the baby is named that. Uh, it would have been my mother. She would have been the oldest child. And she would have been my mother's and Uncle Carlos's sister. But she died uh, in her late teens. She got like smallpox, something like that. I don't, I, I can't quite remember. But she died in her late teens. And she was the, she was the one that was the most religious. Like the, the expectation was that she was going to become a nun. You know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. No, it's not Solomé. My mother's name is Maria Angelina Solomé Delgado. I'll, I'll think of it eventually, I'm sure. All right. Uh, so you had your breakfast, got on the motorcycle and took off. And uh, these were short days, February. Yeah, short days and uh, as many miles as you could fit in. While not traveling, uh, you wanted to avoid driving in the dark. That just increased your risk. Yeah. But you got to remember, this was not the day. These were not the days of interstates. There were no roads that were four lanes wide on each side, and you know you drove through uh, Albuquerque on eighty-five, two eighty-five, or whatever it was back then, and um, and you had all those issues, and then you didn't get onto I forty. You got onto sixty-six. Route 66. Route 66, mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, I don't remember any place being four lanes wide. It was lanes in Texas you could do passing, of course. But, and this was, this was the period of the 60-mile-an-hour speed limit. It didn't go up until later years. 60 was pretty fast for those uh, periods of time. Um, but you tried not to ride at nine. But just to increase your, the chances of you, something bad happening. Plus, uh, back in those days, the headlights were, they didn't throw off a lot. And so you were just as likely to hit a cow or a deer or something because you didn't see it in time. Mm. Uh, daylight, of course, was much better driving. You tried to avoid those situations where all you had was that. And, and the thing about the BSA is it had a, uh, generator on it to provide all the electrical services to the rest of the motorcycle. And it had a beat to it. So the headlight would go. It was, <laughs> it was like, um, 
like hypnotic because, mm-hmm. and it wouldn't go uh, from bright to dark. It would go from very bright to not so bright, you know, but it had a rhythm to it. And it was all based on the relationship between the, um, uh, the gearbox inside the uh, uh, BSA that was driving this generator that wasn't perfect. So yeah, try not to, and, and, and of course the temperature goes way, way down. It wasn't as bad in Texas. Texas didn't have the same kind. We were at, you know, here at, in Santa Fe, we were at 7,000 feet, mm-hmm. uh, similar to Abiquiu. Abiquiu is just under 7,000 feet. By Albuquerque, you're 5,000. By the time you get to Texas, you're at 2,000. By the time you're at Amarillo, you're, you know, the, the altitude changes significantly, and so it warms up a little bit. There were days of riding where I didn't have the big old leather jacket on. I had my jean jacket on. I, I had some thoughts, and then they went out of my head. Oopsies. Going like, zoom, zoom. Oh, okay. I was like, Headlight. So I was hypnotized. Let's <laughs> see. Um, you had talked about something last week that I was going to bring up again. But now I don't remember what it was. Dang it. All right. Um This is uh, this is Uncle Carlos teaching you to be supportive of the, a kid's dream or somebody who's younger than you, their dream. Did you do that for somebody else in your life? Um, well, I tried to. Of course, you try to do it for your children. Let let them have their dreams and help them achieve those dreams when you can. Uh, but as I mentioned last week, and I'm not sure how we got on the topic last week, we started talking about uh, the hero trend, the, the hero's transition to mentor. Mm-hmm. And in this period, during in this part of the story, he's the mentor. I'm still on my journey, my hero's journey. Uh, but and and I learned from them that that giving. I, I had a lot of uh, not that I didn't have female influencers. Uh, you know, Aunt Lucy. I learned how to cook from Aunt Lucy. You know, uh, but I had these positive male influences, which are healthier for a male uh, in my uncles, in the Christian brothers, in the uh, uh, NCOs and officers that I met in the military. And um, that was all positive influence. The guys in the military were a little bit more rough around the edges and they're not interested in whether I have a happy life. Uh, they were interested in whether or not I was performing my duties and responsibility as a soldier, you know, but they did it in such a way. I don't, I, you know, I was watching, I, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but I was watching some movie the other day about Vietnam. And aside from a number of like, no, we didn't have MREs in Vietnam kind of thing. There seemed to be a lot of yelling, you know, mm-hmm. that everybody was yelling at everybody. Uh, plus they were calling a P- PFC, sir. Which anyway, I could go on for hours, <laughs> and they're all their salutes were terrible. I always measure a movie by how good their salutes are. Anyway, there just seemed to be a lot of yelling, and I remember in basic training there's a lot of yelling because he's speaking to 150 young men, and you you yell to so they hear you, right? It's not, I mean, if you made them angry over something or if they felt like you were making a mistake, they had to clear you. They got real close in your face and they got loud. But after that basic training, actually after AIT, I guess, there was not a lot of yelling. I don't remember a lot of yelling like I saw in this movie. It was mostly conversation about what to do and what you need to do and what you need to do. And now, could you make a man? Sure you could. Would they yell when he got mad? But it wasn't as common as just a common conversation in this movie. It was kind of weird. Um, but let me get back to the question you asked. And that is, did I help? So the first place that I applied it to was uh, to the children. And I wanted to focus on them to see where they were going with whatever they're doing. Now, luckily, they all had a, a sports and athletic kind of direction. They were happy with that. I think the girls tried the the brownies or whatever the girls' version of that is. I don't know what it is. Girls' for a while. brownies. Uh, but Laura was an in- Laura wasn't interested, and I couldn't. Right? They didn't allow men into it. The boys didn't show any inclination towards uh, Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, etc. Um, and so I let them do that. But but what I did was I tried to introduce them to all these things. And, you know, from Jason, he's like me. He's got all these various interests. And I think that comes from the fact that I introduced him to a lot of the things that I had learned from mine and, and went on to learn myself. Um, but I think the place that I really paid back that uh, 
that uh, opportunity to become someone's mentor was the 17 years that I coached girls soccer. Um, and uh, that was just a wonderful uh, experience for me. And I tried to make it a wonderful experience for them. I wasn't good to begin with. I was like most dad soccer parents who had never coached soccer or girls for that matter. Uh, and I was probably louder than I needed to be. I was probably more frustrated. Uh, I didn't show them a lot of anger, but I'd, I'd be angry, you know? And then I decided that nah, this is not going to work for them and it's not going to work for me. So I started, I started attending the uh, coaches. Uh, training down at North Carolina State University, which at that time, uh, and over several years during that period, had the number one girls women's uh, college soccer team, Division One soccer team, and uh, they would host these coaching clinics that were pretty expensive, uh, but they were three weeks long. By the time you got back, you you each time you were a better coach, and they had structured it so that if you went to uh, the coaching clinic in one year, when you went back the second year, they actually had like a level up. So you'd learn new things, you know? Um, and so when I'd go back, uh, the following season was always, that was during, so we'd have spring season, I'd go to college and we'd come back and do fall season. And I always felt, felt like each fall season, it was a better, you know, I could move our girls forward. And we eventually reached uh, division one of, in each case, uh, with each, which with uh, Ryan, uh, 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 Sean started later, and she went straight to high school soccer. She played all her four years in high school. She didn't do club soccer, but the girls each went. I'd get them and I'd take them to Division One, and then they'd go to a team that with a coach better. They'd go to a a better team, not just because of the coach, but because of the girls on it. Because there's a couple of things you can do in coaching, and you realize early along, you you can teach them how to dribble. You can teach them how to shoot. You can't teach them to be athletic. You can teach them to be a little bit more coordinated, but the athleticism is genetic. You either have it or you don't. And so there's a point at which you want to put them on a team with athletes as good as they are. Otherwise you're holding them back. But coaching, you know, I think our max team size was 16 or 17, 11 on the field. And coaching five, seven, nine, ten, all the way up through probably eleven-year-old girls is like the best experience I had in terms of learning patience and uh, affection, but not in a creepy way, um, and caring about them and how they just all looked at you. I mean, I I remember times where it'd be after the game, they're all. juice boxes. They're all staring at you like this with their little juice boxes, you know? Mm -hmm. And you're going like, uh, girls, that wasn't our best game. Um, and uh, sometimes you have to, you know, winning Bill's confidence, losing Bill's character, right? <laughs> and so we'll have a better game next week. Uh, but I'm, I want to let you know, we're going to be working hard at practice this week. We had two practices every week. An hour, 90 minutes. That's how long you had them each time. Uh, and then you turn them back to your parents, to their parents. And what you hoped at best was they didn't go get in their car with their parents and say, he is such a jerk. Can we find another team? That was your, like your goal. Like they didn't hate you. Um, and, and of course, for me, the funny part was that year, um, that uh, I had three Ashleys and a Kylie or something like that on the team. And so at that point, <clears throat> I started using last names. And so for for years now, I mean, I, I, I think I told you that I ran into two of my players at Toby's wedding, and I had to ask Toby what their first names were because uh, I, did, I didn't know them, you know. So we talked about the girls, but what about, um, was you know, and that's, something that you know you do for your kids mm -hmm. and 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 that and you do it while your while your girls are the age you I mean you wouldn't continue on if when your girls weren't right. there anymore yeah. um but what about when uh you got vince into your life so vince was i think it happened uh when jason was a sophomore and he came home well, he was, we were living in Virginia, but he came back to visit his mother in New Mexico. 
and Vince was a friend of his, right? And I don't know, I can't tell the whole story. Uh, I can only tell the story that I knew from them. And, and at some point, this sophomore in high school, Vince, had angered, oh, I know what it was. So his father had remarried. And the stepmother was not, didn't want him around like he was just, right? So she kept pushing the father to do something with him. And uh, and his mother, his natural mother, wasn't quite mentally healthy anyway. So Jason called me and he said, I have a friend. Do you think he can stay with us? I said, sure, I guess. I don't know. What do you say? And so when he came back at the end of summer, um, we, uh, he was, you know, that's when we met him. At the time, he, he went by his middle name. He went by Al, Alvin. Mm. And, um, and so, uh, he, we wanted, we had to get him into school, but it turned out that Fairfax County schools have a rule that it doesn't make any difference if the person is living with you or not. You can't, he, he has to be a member of the family in order to attend schools. Otherwise you'd have people, the Fairfax County schools are usually like one or two rated in the nation, right? So people wanted to go there. So they'd send their kids there. Well, they had to be a member of the family. And I, I said, well, adoption work. So they said, yeah, as long as he's a member of the family. And so uh, we adopted him like we did the, the foster children. You know, he just became a, I don't want to say he's a foster child because I feel like we have more of a relationship than that. Uh, but he became a member of the family. Uh, he went to Chantilly High School. And as a matter of fact, in Jason's senior year, when he came back to New Mexico for, for a summer before his senior year, he called me and he said, I'd like to go to St. Mike's next year because my father had graduated from St. Mike's. I had graduated from St. Mike's and he wanted to graduate from St. Mike's. St. Mike's at this time was no longer an all-boys school, nor was it a boarding school. It was a co-educational normal high school with, with uh, Catholic, you know, leanings, right? With, with, it, was, it was still a Catholic school. Mm -hmm. And the only competition in Santa Fe at the time was uh, Santa Fe High School. There's a couple of other high schools. They've grown into a couple of other high schools. Yeah. But he wanted to go to St. Mike's. And I thought, you know, that's a reasonable thing. I'm, I'm okay with that. But Vince didn't have that option. So in his senior year, he stayed with us his senior year. And he graduated from Chantilly. We went to his graduation uh, at Chantilly. And then, and then he went back to New Mexico. So he was kind of his own. So our job was to kind of get him through high school, which what what we did. And then he went back, and uh, I think he went to um, the Northeast. I'm, I'm sorry, the Northwest to go to college. Mm -hmm. And he got into radio. And I'd, we'd get in, you know, I'd, I'd get in touch with him every once in a while. And he spent time in Alaska at a radio station there. And then they moved down towards um, Washington, Seattle, Portland, those things. And he started building a business and he just, the reason they're traveling the way that he and his wife are, uh, is that he built a business and then he sold it, made up money on the business. And that's what is enabling them to do all this traveling in Europe right now. So he was a, he was a good kid and they had a great time together. Uh, I bought them a car. Uh, I bought them a, I don't know, 60 Chevy four door white, big, huge, boat of the thing. And I said, um, if you're at a party and you get drunk, call me. I'll come and get you. And I think out of the three years that we had them, they did that once. Uh, where it was, you know, some senior party. Not, it would have been a junior party because uh, Jason was gone by that time in mm -hmm. senior year. Uh, and they called me one time and they said, we've been drinking. So I'll come and get you. And um, I was talking with Vince one time after that. We were at one of the girls' weddings, and he said that was an amazing moment or something like that. I said, "Wait a minute! I didn't say anything, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't. I, I wasn't about to give him a speech on the why teenagers shouldn't be drinking. I just knew I was a teenager. I drank. All teenagers drink eventually. Mm -hmm. Toby Renee, my little angel, drank. <laughs> you know." Uh, so I knew it was going to happen, and I, that was kind of the rule. Call me, and I'll come and get you. Now, when the girls did it, they'd call their mom because <laughs> nobody wanted to ride home with me. But but um, 
I said, well, what was so bad? I was quiet the whole time. I didn't say anything. And, and uh, Vince said, yeah, that's, that's what made it so bad. It was just that you were quiet. Like, you know, that made it worse for them somehow. But we got up the next morning. They, they had their breakfast and we went and picked up the car. So there was Vince, uh, the girls. I did teach. I taught at uh, Northern, I taught photography at Northern Virginia Community College. Um, I taught documentary making at uh, University of New Mexico. Uh, I taught documentary making at uh, the public access station. Um, I became a, a contributor at the public access station, and eventually I ran their studio um, there on Central Avenue, which is where we kind of followed up our meeting. But I also, you know, every time I got an opportunity, uh, like I did with the um, New Mexico Art and Artist, um, I'd go to... Well, that's where we met, right? I went to uh, the community college and I said, I need help on this. I know you guys are film guys, but I'll teach you television if you'll and pay you if you'll help me on this project. And so uh, there's always been a sense that, uh, at least in my opinion for myself, that there's a lot of things I know about and I love sharing what I know. You you probably know that from all the interactions we've had with the people that we've helped um, or the emails that I get, you know, yeah. um, I, I really enjoy helping people. I mean, it's very rewarding to get an email back that said, I went and bought what you told me and I tried it out and it works perfectly. You know, um, that to me is a very rewarding. That's, that's better than anything. You couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't pay money that would make me feel better than, that kind of email makes me feel so, or, or people saying I learned more about documentary making in your 10 week class than I ever expected to learn, you know, or uh, here's a link to my documentary that I made after, you know, attending your class. So. Any other um, moments in this chapter that you want to talk about? No, I think uh, I think it's one of those that speaks for its health. I think the two characters in that, well, three if you count Crockett, um, the two characters play their roles so well. Uh, the hero needing a mentor, mm -hmm. uh, the mentor letting the, the hero experience, you know, learn from the experience. And I think we did a really good job of characterizing that in the chapter. I don't think it gets much better than that. I don't think I I could go back and add to it and say, you know, well, there, there isn't enough mentorship there or there isn't enough heroship there. I think it's a well-written chapter uh, between the two characters. And I think as we moved forward in writing the book, I don't know whether we recognized it or the value of that writing it that way, but if you look at it from that point forward as he engages with each of the one or two people that became become the other characters in the chapter, it sounds a lot alike. We let those characters be mentors and we let him be the hero with an open heart and, and an open mind and willing to learn from them. Although he didn't, I don't think he ever saw himself as, as in the same way that a hero sees themselves in the hero's journey. Odysseus knew he was the hero. You know, Achilles knew he was the hero. Whenever you see these stories that are the, the genesis for um, Campbell's uh, Hero of a Thousand Faces, they know they're the heroes. Miguel doesn't. He doesn't, he doesn't know that yet. Uh, but he does know and he learns from uh, all the people that are willing to help him be a hero. He just, you know, and, and I suppose someday you hope that you get to pay them back. Now, the reality is the only person that I ever con that I ever came in contact with of all the people in this book was Uncle Carlos. Mm -hmm. And I made sure I paid him back. I worked that next summer instead of going off to work for the Department of Human Services or whatever I did. Um, I went back and spent the summer in AbbeyQ with him. And I learned about farming and I learned about chickens and I learned about roosters that just won't shut up. <laughs> you know, uh, it was uh, it was as good a summer as any of the others. I got to fish the chama with him, um, with him and his salmon eggs. So I didn't, I, he didn't have fly rods. I didn't have a choice. Like I didn't have my own fly rod. Mm. So I had to fish like him with salmon eggs. We had a lot of fish. 
I got a lot of fish for the old salmon eggs. There you go. On the chum. All right. Well, I don't uh, have any more questions for you for today. Do you have any questions for me? Um, yeah. What are you going to do with all this information that you're gaining by having these conversations? Oh, well, it's being filed away for a future book that we're going to write. Mm. Another one. Yet another book, huh? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's the military book. The military years. I don't know why that scares me when you say that. You already have the opening. I don't know why we can't just finish it up, right? You just, uh, you know, when would be a good time to write that? When? When we're driving across the country. Oh, my God. We'll have four days. <laughs> Got you trapped in a vehicle. Yeah. yeah. A laptop on my lap. And... and now I have a way to power it for you. There you go. In the, in the truck, it'll just power it all day long. Yeah. That'll be our next great adventure. Mm. All right. Well, that's all we have for today. Make sure you do check out A Gypsy's Kiss, A Treasure Hunt Adventure. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, if you go to books.agkmedia.studio, you'll find it there on our books list. And um, that's all I got. What do you got? Anything else? I got some ribs that I need to make for us. All right. We're going to head off and have some dinner. And we hope that you enjoyed <clears throat> today's chapter, Moving Forward, and it helps you to move forward in your life. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Our Story, Your Story. We hope you enjoyed hearing our stories and those of our guests. We invite you to share your own stories with us by emailing us at stories at agkmedia.studio. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. Until next time, keep telling your story because your story matters. <laughs>